Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. A recent Government Accountability Office analysis of Department of Education data found that Black students, boys, and students with disabilities are disproportionately disciplined in K-12 public schools. This aligns with earlier research from the Brookings Brown Center on Education Policy that shows how Black and poor students are suspended at much higher rates than their white and non-poor peers. Here to talk about that research and some of the interpretations of the data behind it is John Vallant, a fellow in the Brown Center and one of the co-authors of a study on school discipline disparities by student race and family income. Also in this episode, David Wessel offers his thoughts on the Chinese economic model and Beijing's plan for its future prosperity. He reflects on his recent trip to China, which included a visit to the city of Xi'an. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. If you have a question for an expert, email it to bcp at brookings.edu. And now, on with the interview. John, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for having me. So as I was doing this research to talk to you today, I thought of an anecdote, something that happened when I was in elementary school way back during the Jimmy Carter administration. Okay. The principal of my elementary school had on the wall in his office a very large wooden paddle with holes drilled into it. And I remember one day I was walking the halls, going to class, and this kid ran by me as fast as he could run, and the principal ran by me chasing the kid with the paddle in hand, and everybody knew once the principal caught the kid, it's back in his office, and that paddle was going to be used. And that was school discipline circa Jimmy Carter administration. But that's not the kind of discipline that we want in our schools today. So tell me, John, what is this larger issue of school discipline disparities that you and fellow researchers have looked at? Sure. And I should say, first of all, that corporal punishment still happens in parts of the United States. That is actually a big and not very well-known issue in punishment, but we do still have paddles in some public schools across the U.S. But the discipline topic that's really getting a lot of attention now and has become kind of a white-hot policy topic is the question of whether certain groups of students are disciplined more harshly for similar behaviors than other groups of students, and particularly students of color, students with disabilities, and students from families in poverty. And so what we're seeing right now is the Trump administration, led by Betsy DeVos in the Department of Education, is looking into the issue of whether we should throw away some guidance that came from the Obama administration that directed schools on how to make sure that they're not being discriminatory and how they're treating black and white students. And so we're sort of in this moment where how students are punished is very much in the front of the minds of policymakers in addition to school leaders I want to get to your research and give you a chance to talk in some detail about it. But you brought up the Obama-era guidance and the Trump administration's response to it, I guess. Can you talk about what that guidance is and then what the Trump administration is doing differently? So in 2014, the Department of Education and the Department of Justice issued a letter. And this was sort of a preferred move of the Obama administration was to issue a dear colleagues letter that would come out of a department and say, here is sort of some relevant federal law. Here is how we're going to enforce that law. And then here are some suggestions for how you might make sure that you are complying with that law. And in 2014, one of these letters came out and it addressed discipline and discriminatory treatment in student discipline. And it pointed to one fact that is essentially undisputed, which is that Students of color are disciplined at higher rates than white students. 
For example, African-American students without disabilities are suspended at rates about three to four times higher than white students without disabilities. And that has become sort of the starting point for a big discussion. So that point is not disputed. The question that immediately follows that of whether that gap is a product of schools treating students differently depending on their background is a very controversial one and one for which there is less evidence and sort of a less clear answer. And so now what's happening is the Trump administration is looking at that letter, which sort of established that we do have these big gaps in the rates at which students are disciplined and talked about what schools need to do in order to avoid an investigation from the federal government. And they're talking about throwing away that letter, sort of in the same way that they threw away uh, guidance you might remember on sexual assault on college campuses. Title IX. The Title IX guidance, exactly. And so now we've moved from campus sexual assault to student discipline, and we're very much in what looks like a very similar process. I know that the major question here is whether these gaps in punishment or discipline are discriminatory and based on discriminatory factors. And again, I want to talk about that in some detail. But one question is... Well, if students are misbehaving in school, then of course they should be disciplined and of course they should be suspended. And why is that a problem? Because students have been suspended from school forever. Yeah, there are some behaviors that I think just about anyone would say a student should be suspended for that behavior. So if a student physically attacks another student, very few people would say that that student should stay in school and not suffer any kind of consequence for that action. Where it gets much more questionable is what happens when you have less severe, nonviolent types of infractions. And here we're talking about maybe a student uses profanity or commits a uniform violation where they're not dressed to code or shows up late for a few classes. Some of those types of offenses, those aren't necessarily doing harm to students. And they're the types of offenses that can disproportionately hit certain student populations. So, for example, homeless populations, which is actually a very large student population, may have trouble with really strict uniform regulations. And so if... If we're suspending and sending students out of school for behaviors that aren't all that serious, you do start to worry about, first of all, the time that students are missing, and second of all, who it is who's being impacted by this and what message we're sending students that we sort of want them to go away when they might just be kids acting like kids. And then they're starting to get involved with the criminal justice system for youth at that point, which, I mean, that can be a pipeline to more involvement in the criminal justice system. That's right, and that's a real concern here. So the causal evidence is not very clear, but there's plenty of correlational evidence that students who are suspended and expelled have more points of contact with juvenile justice systems, with adult criminal systems. And we worry that if students are in school and they're receiving messages that they are sort of bad kids who we need to remove from school settings rather than helping them to sort of figure out what it is that's at the root of the misbehavior. You worry about what message that sends and then what the long-term consequences for those students are. So, John, tell me about the research now that you and some colleagues have done on this question of discipline disparities and discrimination in schools. Sure. So one of the hardest questions in this area is the extent to which those gaps in suspension rates for students of color and white students are due to actual discriminatory treatment by schools. Because it might be that, you know, there are a lot of social problems that will hit students well before they show up at school for the first day. So it might be that you see actual behavior differences by different groups and schools are sort of responding proportionately and appropriately to what they see. So what we tried to do was look for the best evidence that we could find of whether schools treat black and white students differently for the same types of behaviors. And we have this sort of really rich, nice data set from Louisiana. And what we did is we looked at the ways that students were 
punished when they got into fights. And we looked at a very particular kind of fight, which was a fight between a black student and a white student, where the students had very similar discipline histories coming into it. So we have incidents that seem like students should get sort of the same punishment because you have a white student and a black student. They came into it looking very similar. And what we saw when we looked at those fights is that there is a difference. So black students are systematically suspended for longer than white students. The difference is not enormous. It's about one day for every 20 of those suspensions. So it's not a huge difference, but we do think it is reflective of some bias in the way that Louisiana schools were punishing black and white students for similar behaviors. So how do you, as a researcher, study this when you're not actually there to observe these behaviors? You're just relying on the reports of the educators in Louisiana. That's right. And we are only seeing a tiny, tiny part of what's going on in schools. So part of what makes this such a controversial issue and has made this so difficult for a lot of people to understand and talk about is that we as researchers and then policymakers out there can't really see how students are actually behaving. All we see is what shows up in student data. And you worry about that. And so one reason why you might worry about that is that we can't see what happens if maybe a white student and a black student both speak out in class. And maybe when the white student spoke out, it didn't show up at all. It wasn't punished. It wasn't noted. The student was not sent to the principal's office, and the black student was. Well, that is essentially unobservable to us. So we are really limited in what it is that we can see. And so what we thought was we should look for what would be the clearest evidence of discrimination, even if it's possible that it's just sort of a tip of the iceberg of what is out there. And we thought that the most credible way of looking at that would be these interracial fights where we at least know that we have a sort of equal terms fight and we can see what happens starting from that sort of equal starting place. But you also had a broader look too. You had that very specific event that you studied, but you also have data that's just more general comparison of suspensions for students of color versus white students and for suspensions of low-income students versus non-low-income students. And I think your findings were pretty stark on that area, right? That's right. So we found in Louisiana, just like others have found for the country as a whole or for other states, that there are very large gaps by race, also by family income for us. So students from families in poverty get suspended at much higher rates than other families. Part of what we looked at beyond this kind of fight analysis, which was focused on discrimination, is we wanted to understand where these gaps arise. So it could be that the gaps are arising within schools, where black students within a school might be suspended at higher rates than white students. And if you see that in kind of school after school after school, you would expect the overall patterns that we see. Another possibility is that schools that have predominantly black student populations suspend students at really high rates, and schools that have predominantly white student populations suspend it at low rates. And just that difference, even if there isn't any actual difference within schools or any type of discrimination within schools, still could give rise to the types of patterns we see. And what we found when we were looking in Louisiana was that both contribute. So a good part of that gap is showing up between schools, but then it does also seem like schools with black students are punishing at a much higher rate. And I should say, by the way, that this is not just a black-white issue more broadly. In Louisiana, it sort of is just because of the demographics of the state, and so we're sort of limited to our data. But in other places, there's plenty of evidence that there are also large gaps between Hispanic and white students and other kind of historically disadvantaged groups. I think that last point, maybe, it kind of starts to answer my following question, which I almost hesitate to ask. But there are people out there, there are critics of research like this who will say, well, of course there are disparities in discipline because kids from poor communities or African-American kids just misbehave more than the white kids do. 
I personally don't believe that. How do you respond to those kinds of thoughts? I think it's a fair question when you're talking about this kind of research. So what we do not want to do with federal policy, state policy, local policy is suggest that schools are being discriminatory if the problem is not located at the school level. So if it is true that schools are just responding in the same way to white and black students and students are bringing different behaviors to the school, then we need to figure out where else we've gone wrong. You know, what policy can we put in place? How do we fix the problem that is showing up at schools' doors? And make sure that we're not sending the wrong message to schools that that is sort of the origin of this problem. My strong suspicion is that we have kind of a mix of a whole bunch of different causes of this. So at this point, there is plenty of evidence of implicit bias where we see time and time again and in all kinds of contexts that people treat people differently depending on something like their race. So I'll give you an example of a study that I think is really relevant and interesting. Some researchers at Yale University brought in a group of early childhood educators and they asked them to watch video of four children and look for signs of misbehavior. And the four children they were watching were a black boy, a black girl, a white boy, and a white girl. And the researchers tracked the eye movements of the educators who were watching the students behave. And they showed them a video with no signs of actual misbehavior. And what they found was that the educators were watching the black students, and particularly the black boys, more than they were watching other students. So we have all of this kind of peripheral evidence that there's probably reason to worry about what's happening in schools. But at the same time, it's also very likely that discrimination by teachers and principals can account for these very large full gaps. We know that there are challenges that come from poverty and lots of other places that can contribute to the gaps too. And so the suggestion that there is bias involved in schools and how they punish students does not mean that is sort of the extent of what is causing these kind of gaps, nor that the only solutions to closing the gaps involve eliminating that type of bias. Let's move on to solutions. And I'm in mind again of that anecdote I told you where in my childhood, corporal punishment and exclusion through suspension or even expulsion were pretty much the common currency of school discipline in the days. And as you said, we still see that today and it's even appropriate in some cases. But not all school infractions require that kind of disciplinary intervention. And we're starting to see in communities around the country a different approach Right here in D.C., there's a new law that governs a new approach to school discipline. Can you talk about some of those, please? Sure. And to be clear, there are definitely fewer students being chased around hallways with paddles, which is a very healthy thing. And what we're seeing now, in part in response to some of these concerns about discriminatory discipline, and this is not true everywhere, but this is true in some states and in some schools, more of a focus on less punitive responses that try to get at the root of the misbehavior and address whatever it is that's at the root of the misbehavior. I'll give you one example. There's a set of responses called restorative justice practices where students will often sit in a circle following some kind of incident and you'll have students try to work out among themselves while adults and other students facilitate. They'll try to work out whatever the problem was. And the idea is that in bringing students together and getting them to talk and understand what they've done and what it meant to the community when they had some kind of issue in school, that you can get at the root of that rather than just sort of kicking kids out the door when they do something wrong. So there's been kind of a general move in that direction toward less punitive practices. Some of that has been initiated by schools. A lot of it has actually been initiated by policymakers. So in the last few years, we've seen about half of all U.S. states have put together some kind of policy that either limits the use of exclusionary discipline like suspensions and expulsions or is a little more active in telling schools what they should do. And here in the District of Columbia, it's one sort of very recent 
example. A couple of years ago, the city council very severely limited the types of behaviors that could get pre-kindergartners suspended because, believe it or not, pre-kindergartners can get suspended. (laughs) And you see gaps there in in pre-K. And so they cut way down on pre-K suspensions and now have just passed additional legislation that will more narrowly define what it is that can get a student suspended in grades kindergarten through eight or on in high school. So now that you and your colleagues have done this research with focus on Louisiana, what's next in this research agenda? Yeah, so, I mean, a big question that I often hear is, well, you know, Louisiana is a southern state. How do we know that what's going on in Louisiana isn't going on everyplace else? And we don't know that. So this type of research is new and coming, and we're building a research base around what is going on here. So some of what I hope to be doing in the near future will be sort of looking beyond Louisiana and trying to see patterns in other places. The gaps show up everywhere. So this is not a southern phenomenon that black students are suspended at higher rates than white students. But we don't know if the dynamics there vary from state to state. I also think that there is a great deal of research to be done on these alternative practices and some of these non-punitive practices. We know now that schools are using them more often, and we have some reason to believe that at least in some schools it seems to be going well. In other schools it hasn't gone as well, but we don't have good evidence of the effects of these different types of programs. And part of what that means, and this sort of gets back to why this issue has been so tricky. I mean, it's controversial in part because there is race involved and discrimination involved, but it's also hard. And it's hard in part because we're a couple of steps ahead of the research evidence right now. We don't know very much about the extent of bias, and we don't know very much about the effects of these alternate programs. So my hope in my own work and then in others' work who are also interested in addressing student discipline is trying to understand more about what it is that causes these gaps and trying to understand more about some of the different approaches we might take to closing them. Well, John, I look forward to learning more about your research as it continues. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Thanks very much, Fred. You can learn more about John Vallant's research on our website, brookings.edu, and follow education policy on our Brown Center chalkboard on the Brookings website. And now, Wessel's Economic Update. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. If one looks beyond the tweets and self-defeating tactics, Donald Trump does make some strong points about China. The U.S. once hoped that if we engaged with China persistently, China would, over time, make its economy and political system more like ours and would join the institutions and rules-based global trading system the U.S. helped create over the past half century. China, instead, has made amazing progress by pursuing an unusual policy mix of its own design markets with government subsidies and industrial policy, an authoritarian government with 21st century internal surveillance that would have stunned George Orwell, sealing off large parts of its economy to foreign investment, taking, sometimes by legal means, sometimes by copying, other people's intellectual property. One can imagine the Chinese saying, why should we adopt the American model when the Chinese model has worked so well for us? Why should we play by American rules if we can persuade the world to play by Chinese rules? Particularly in the wake of the 2008 global financial crisis, our strain of capitalism has been tarnished. Donald Trump is right. It'll take more than a few more rounds of Bush or Obama-style dialogues to get China to change, to stop swiping our technology, to offer our companies the same access to their market that we have offered theirs. 
But Donald Trump's tactics are doomed. He's divided our allies instead of uniting them to put pressure on China. He has threatened tariffs and quotas that'll hurt the U.S. economy as much as the Chinese. And importantly, he doesn't see what I witnessed on my recent trip to Xi'an and Shenzhen. China is not only copying what we do and making it more cheaply than we can, though it still does that. And China is not only stealing our intellectual property, though it still does that. The Chinese government has a plan for its future prosperity. Unfortunately, we in the U.S. do not. And Chinese businesses and entrepreneurial individuals are beginning to innovate. They're not just copying. At a government-backed incubator in Xi'an with close ties to a local university, I met a 29-year-old who founded a firm in 2015 that makes newfangled walkie-talkies for use in remote areas. He now employs 70 people. I made another who is making custom earphones tuned to the characteristics of the individual ear. I visited a workshop space run by a venture capital firm with offices in Shenzhen and San Francisco, which funds startups from around the world and brings them to Shenzhen to build prototypes because it's so much quicker to do that in China than anywhere else. Their slogan, when building hardware, all roads lead to Shenzhen. In Shenzhen, China is creating an ecosystem of talent, money, government support, and access to the huge Chinese market. It's China's answer to Silicon Valley. Now, it has its problems. With 450 incubators, there's talk of an incubator bubble. And, of course, not all of China is like Shenzhen. But it is, nonetheless, a very significant effort at innovation. And while U.S. companies sometimes struggle to sell to the vast Chinese market, Chinese companies are innovating their business models, taking advantage of the ubiquitous cashless payment systems called WePay and Alipay. I saw a man with a bicycle cart selling ears of corn who had a QR code on his bike so customers could pay with WePay, no cash. Moreover, the vast amount of data collected by the companies and by the government in a country that appears to have few privacy protections, is providing vast amounts of raw data to fuel the development of sophisticated artificial intelligence and machine learning products, a top priority of the Chinese government. There are cracks in the foundation of the Chinese miracle, widening inequality, a rapidly aging society, a mountain of debt, a vast industrial rust belt, intolerance of dissent, a Chinese firewall that blocks open access to the Internet, But I saw something else, too. Some of the drive, imagination, aspiration, and creativity that makes America great. You can listen to more from David Wessel on our SoundCloud channel. Thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. And finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez and David Nassar for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. 
follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.